0: Father in heaven, um, we come now to hear from you. We've been singing your praises. We've been listening to what we've been singing and hearing. We know that you're present with us. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? And so, Father, I pray that since you're here, Lord Jesus, since you're alive, Holy Spirit, since you are among us, bringing the Father and Son to us, I pray... That you would now teach us, open our minds, hearts, eyes, ears, lives, souls, to the truth of Christ. That we may live, really live. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Turn, please, to First Peter in chapter 5. I want to read verses 8 through 11. I read these last week, got through two of those verses. We'll hopefully take the latter two on this morning. First Peter chapter ...5, 8 through 11. Hear the word of God. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion... ...seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith... ...knowing that the same kinds of suffering... ...are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while... ...the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 8 catches our attention. For it tells us that there is an adversary, the devil who roars around, that is powerfully seeking, frankly, us to devour. That gets our attention. So Peter says, be serious about life. Be serious about these things. There is uh, an adversary. It is an unsophisticated of us to believe in a literal devil. As believers in Christ, as Christians, we understand there is a spiritual realm. There is a realm that we cannot see. We know in that realm that we cannot see is God and angels and demons as well. And this very one, this one, this adversary, this roaring lion, this one called the devil, this is the same very one who tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the very same one who came against Job, the very same one who tempted Jesus in the wilderness, the very same one who influenced even Peter on that fateful day when Jesus had to turn to him and say, Get behind me, Satan. That very same one, this adversary. is powerful. The scriptures refer to him as the prince of the world, the god of this age. So in that sense, you see, he, he's, he's, he's powerful. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul shows of his influence even in the lives of people. For instance, in Ephesians, in chapter 2, in and, and verse 2, uh, Paul writes of him like this. He says, Following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so we see this, 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 the power of this Satan this very one, in all who disobey. And then in Second Corinthians, in chapter 4, uh, the apostle speaks of him uh, like this. He says, In their case, that is unbelievers, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of, of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. And we see, thus, his power to blind people so that Christ can't be seen, so that the gospel that is in Christ can't be seen, that the glory of God that is to, to be uh, seen, to be shown uh, by Christ can't be seen. And so we see that Satan's intention is to destroy the works of God, this, the, the, the intention of Satan is to, to lock people into unbelief and thus he targets faith. And even though he has these lofty titles of the God of the world, the the prince of the air, the God of this age, it doesn't mean that he is a God in the sense that God is God. He's not eternal, for instance. He doesn't have the characteristics of God. He's not eternal. He's a created being, a fallen angel, as it were. He's not sovereign over things. He, He can't do just what he pleases, because still he falls under the sovereignty of God. He's not omnipotent. He isn't all-powerful. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He's not omnipresent. He can't be in any one place, at every place in at one point in time. That's the cohorts of demons that he enlists. But still, he isn't omnipresent. He isn't God in that sense. He's simply the prince of this world, the God of this age, because this age reflects him. And he said, work powerfully through the world, through circumstances, through our own sinful natures, to try to lock us into sin and to keep us from faith. That is this one, the devil. And Jesus has defeated him. On behalf of all those who are his sheep, all those who are his people, he's defeated Satan so that he can't blind our eyes. He can't destroy our faith. But though he is defeated, he has yet to be cast into the pit, he has yet to be destroyed. And so Peter says, he's still there. Be sober, be watchful. Understand life is serious. This isn't coasting for Christians. So be careful. Be watchful in the midst of this. And the way that we keep from being devoured, he says, is to resist him by standing firm in the faith. And the way that we stand firm in the faith, of course, is being armored with Christ, put on the armor of God, clothe ourselves with Christ. And thus we must believe and understand and hold to the fact that the Scripture is really the truth, the Word of God, because if ever we get away from the Scriptures informing us concerning truth and Scripture alone, then we become devoured. We can see this roaring line beginning to nibble away at us. He says, understand really that your righteousness is in Christ alone, that it's his righteousness given to you. Anytime we trust in the righteousness of ourselves or the righteousness of another, other than Christ, we begin to be nibbled at and to be devoured. He said, understand that the only way you'll know peace is the very peace with God, having the peace of God that comes through Jesus and him alone. Anytime we trust another to bring us peace with God, to be able to Stand in his presence, accepted by him. Then we begin to be devoured. He says, "All that can stand against him is faith, and that is faith in Christ. And you must wield the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, trusting in it and it alone, and using it because you know it, and you know where to stand because you have the helmet of salvation. You know where to stand. He says, Any time you stop trusting in Christ, then the devouring begins. So resist him, stand firm.'" in the faith, he says. Now, that was all last week. The question for this week is, well, do we have any hope to be able to do that? I mean, do we have any hope, really, that we're, able, we're going to be able to stand firm in the faith? Are we going to be able to resist this powerful one? Are we Are going to be able to resist this one whose name is the prince of the power of the air, whose name is, is the god of this age, the adversary, the deceiver, the slanderer, This lie, are we going to be able to really stand and not get devoured? And of course, the answer that the Apostle Peter gives to that question is yes, of course, we'll be able to stand. We will be able to resist him. And you say, how? Well, because we trust in God. Because notice, this God is the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. That's the one in whom we hope, the God of all grace. Who has called us to His eternal glory in Christ? That's our hope. That's our security. That's our sh- our, our, our our assurance in God and God alone, the God of all grace. <laughs> that's really it. We need grace. Uh, grace is God's blessing. God's kindness. God's goodness. Given to those, shown to those who are sinners deserving his wrath. That's grace. Grace is God's kindness to sinners who really deserve his wrath. And it isn't, and, and just these should be concepts for you, most of you, many of you that are familiar, that you should know. So don't just let me say this. Anticipate me as you're thinking. Okay? Jurassic. Anticipate. What am I going to say about this? You should know. Alright? And if you don't know, then begin learning to know, because this is, this is it. Because, you see, it's not that we're just undeserving, but we're ill-deserving. You see, we're undeserving because we're sinners, thus we deserve his wrath. But it isn't that you, we just don't get what we deserve. We get what we don't deserve. See, we deserve hell. And it isn't that we just don't get hell. We get heaven. That's amazing. It isn't that we're just undeserving. We're ill-deserving of what we actually end up getting. You see, we deserve eternal death that is living forever under the wrath of God. What we get is eternal life living forever under the blessing of God. We deserve to be rejected by God, but instead we're accepted. It isn't just we're not we're not just rejected and ignored we're not rejected and accepted we're received we belong to him when we shouldn't belong to him it isn't just that we don't belong to anyone we actually end up belonging to God that you see is the wonderful grace of God Uh, that's what we really need you see and it's, this grace is evidenced by how Peter describes us. For instance, go back to 1 Peter in chapter 1. We've been through this too, but it's been a few months. Verse 6. But 1 Peter in chapter 1, he says, Peter, an apostle, verse 1, a Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect. He, he, he begins his letter by talking really about the grace of God. He uses a word that is only consistent with grace. He says, you're the elect of God. You're the chosen ones. And I don't know if you ever think about that. But how is it that you came to be a chosen one? That God would look at you and look to you and and uh, and choose you to be his. On what basis did he do that? I don't know about you, but I simply don't have an answer for that other than on the basis of his own kindness, on the basis of his own love, on the basis of his own mercy. Because there's certainly nothing inherent in me which would cause him to to choose me. You know, generally when someone is chosen, it's, it's because of some reason. It's because they deserve it in some way if you're chosen first. As the, for, for the team it's because you're better than everyone else if you're chosen for the job it means that, that you're better suited for that job than everyone else but, but this we, we simply know ourselves too well to say that because we know our own sin and this isn't a morbid thing it's just a truthful thing I mean if God is God and He is holy and He says that we're to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength I just simply have to raise my hand and say I haven't I haven't really honored him as God. I haven't really depended upon him exclusively. I haven't glorified him in, in in everything. I haven't looked to him to direct my life in every way and to define me and to lead me. And I haven't found my delight in him and in him alone. I'm so distracted by so many other things, and I know that I haven't loved him as I should. And I know that I haven't loved other people the way that he's called me to love other people. I've put my interests ahead of. Theirs. I've been impatient, I've been unkind, I've been envious, I've been unfaithful in friendships, I've been lustful, I've been prideful. Who among us is going to say, well, I know why God has chosen me because I've sort of fit some sort of good build here. Not good build, this good bill, but you know what I mean. Ah, no, he's chosen us. Do we have to ask the question, uh, why? Why us? Because, you see, we've come to that point as chosen ones. We've come to that point, we know. We've come to the point where we've seen our sin. And we've seen it in such a way to know that it deserves the wrath of God. And we know, therefore, our hopelessness and our helplessness in that position. But somehow also, we've also been able to see Christ... We've been able to see Him as He really is. We've been able to see Him as the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. And we see Him, now again anticipate me, upon what basis have you been saved? Do you know the answer to that question? On what basis have you been saved? We've been saved on the basis of Christ and Christ alone. For He is our representative and our substitute. He's our representative in that He comes and lives the life that we should live. And we haven't lived it, but He lived it. And so He lived it to please His Father completely, for us. To satisfy all the demands of His Father, for us. So that we could be given His righteousness. And then He died as our substitute, taking the penalty for our sin upon Himself. Always remember that of Christ, representative substitute. He's the one for me, who lived for me. He's the one who died for me. And it's on that basis and that basis alone that I'm accepted by God. And and you say to yourself, how do I know that? Well, by the exposure of the gospel. But, but, But you also know that there are other people who have been exposed to the gospel and not believed. There are people here this morning who have been exposed to the gospel time after time who still don't believe. Why do you believe? You could say, well, in my upbringing, I grew up in a Christian home. But but, but there are people who grew up in Christian homes who aren't Christians. There are people who grew up in unbelieving homes who are Christians. So it isn't that just. It's helpful. It's good to have a Christian home. We hope we all do. We hope we all tell our children about Jesus. But the truth of the matter, that isn't it exclusively. You can't look to that. And you could say, well, it's because I, I humbled myself before God. But why did you do that? What was in you that enabled you to humble yourself before God in order to come to Him? Other people haven't, and they're just as nice as you are. You say, well, it's because, because I opened my heart to him. Well, that's good, but on what basis did you open your heart to him? I mean, why did you open your heart to him? And other people haven't really opened their hearts to you. You say, well, it's because I'm, I've been good. I won't even go there. <laughs> you really think so? Bless you. Remember, you're going to, have to say that when you stand before God. I've been good. It won't be a laughing matter to him, but I think he'll smile. You didn't get it? It isn't that, you see. It was a work of God. And there's a mystery here. We don't know why he doesn't save everyone and all that. That's not why any of that's in the Bible about this thing, election and chosen and all those kinds of things. It's just simply there to humble us so that we'll know that it was God and not us, knowing that we can never put on airs before another. We can never stand arrogant before another. Because it was God who did it. That's why it's all of grace. It's all of grace. That's why Peter could write in chapter 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. See, it was a work of God. He's caused us to be born again. Anyone who is ever born has been caused to be born. Nobody conceives themselves. It's always... Outside of oneself, that one is conceived. And so, when the scripture uses this image of being born again, this truth of being born again, it's this reference to the fact that it's someone else's doing. Someone else gave life here so that you could have life. And that was a work of God. It is all of grace. And you see, if it isn't all of grace, then, 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 then we lack assurance because then we begin to think, what part of this is, is my doing? What part of this is because of me? What part of this do I need alone, apart from God, to stand before this evil one who's ready to devour me? Well, what part is there of that? Peter says, oh, you can be confident here. It is, in fact, all of grace. In fact, Arthur Pink, a 20th century dead guy, Uh, writes this, he says, about God. He is the God of all grace, seeking grace, quickening grace, pardoning grace, cleansing grace, providing grace, recovering grace, preserving grace, glorifying grace, every kind and of full measure, seeking grace. That's what we need. We need God. He's, as one poet put it, the hound of heaven. He comes to seek and to save that which is lost. We don't even know we're lost And he comes to us. We didn't invite Jesus to come. God sent him to save sinners. He's quickening grace. That is, we need him to give us life because we're dead, the scripture says, in trespasses and sins. Pardoning grace, yes. We need him to cleanse our sins, to pardon our sins. And that's grace because we've done nothing to deserve this pardon. We can't pay the debt. To pay the debt would be to suffer in all eternity under the wrath of God. That never pays it off. That goes on forever forever. So it is pardoning grace, it's cleansing grace, it's providing grace that is equipping grace, empowering grace, strengthening grace, the grace to help us in times of need. It's, it's uh, recovering grace when we fall, it's that grace of God that comes to us and convicts us of our sins and convinces us of His forgiveness again and lifts us up. It's preserving grace, it's glorifying grace and that is true. He says the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. See, this God of all grace, this gracious God is the one who has called us. And when the scripture uses the word called in that kind of way, it's more than just an announcement. It's a divine summons. When God calls like this, it's a divine summons, and his call achieves its purpose when Jesus called the 12 disciples, they all said, yes. When Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus and he said, "Lazarus, come forth, that dead man did." Oh, think about that. I mean, I, 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 it's just amazing. I hope if you have children, you're reading these stories to them before they go to bed, that, that you just pause a little while and go, that really, that really happened. And that's amazing. I've never seen that. If I were doing a funeral. That would be a little spooky. (laughs) Not to mention how upset the women in the church would be. Hey, we prepared this big lunch, and now he's alive. But, But think about that. All he had to do, that's his calling. That's his divine summons to bring life. And so the God of all grace, not just some grace, but all grace, the God of all kinds of grace, every bit of grace that we need, stand. The God of all grace who has called you. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says the one who has called you is faithful and he will bring it to pass. Yes, that's this calling. Romans in chapter 8 and verse 29 speaks of this calling like this. The apostle writes, For those whom he, that is God, new, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. So God says, here's the destiny that you're going to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Okay, That's your destiny. And so then he singled those out by his mercy, and then he called them. So that they would believe, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. That is, everyone he calls, none that he calls in this way, will go unjustified. Everyone he calls, he justifies. Every single one. nobody falls through the cracks. those he calls, he justifies. those he justifies, he glorifies. that is takes heaven. So this calling, you see, is effective. it works. So Peter's saying, listen to me. You're worried about getting devoured by the evil one? You're worried about not being able to stand by faith because because this evil one is really evil and really there and really is powerful and all that? Well, remember, God is the God of all grace. And the God of all grace is the God who has called you. And he's called you to something very specific in this case he's pointing to. He says, the God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. What's that? Well, it's God's glory that comes to us in Christ. What's that? Well, in a sense, we could just shorten it all and just say heaven. That would be the sort of regular nomenclature that we would do. That's the consummation of all that God has 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 promised to us. He says he's called you to that, which means it will happen. Peter's saying, listen, I know I've just told you to be sober and be watchful because the evil one is there and he's an adversary seeking to devour you. You need to stand firm in the faith. That's the means by which you fight Him and are able to stay. But, I also want you to know that you're not alone. Not only are you not alone, but it's the God of all grace who is with you and He has called you. And He said, this is your destination. This is where you're going to get to. You really, you really will. You're going to get to go to a place Ultimately, where everything will reflect God, everything will manifest His glory. You look at everything, and what you'll see is Jesus, even your own life. Second Thessalonians puts it like this: Second Thessalonians, in chapter two, verses thirteen and fourteen. Paul's writing in a very similar context that he that Peter writes in First Peter, suffering people. He says, but we ought also to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you, as the first fruits, or that could be translated, God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that, here's the point I want, you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this God of all grace who has called us to His eternal glory in Christ will be in a place where everything reflects God. That means there will be no sin, there will be no tears, there will be no death, there will be no sickness, there will be no sadness, there will be no poverty, there will be no injustice. Everything will reflect Him, even us. For we will obtain, this says, the glory of our Lord Jesus. What does that mean? 1 John chapter 3, and verse 2. Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, that is, Jesus, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. In other words, when we're experiencing this eternal glory in Christ, we'll be like Jesus. Not divine, but in the context of purity, in the context of righteousness, in the context of desiring to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves, and doing it. That's what it'll be like. Now, I must confess that when I think about this eternal glory in Christ's heaven, I often think about it very, very selfishly. Because life is hard. And there are days when I just ask God to beam me up, that would be so much nicer. And I'm thinking, because there, everything is wonderful. There, everything is blissful. There there are no tears. There's no pain. There's no injustice. There's no poverty. There's no difficulties. I don't even think there's a telephone. And it's rather selfish of me. I I simply want to escape this. Now, there's something good about that. We should, in a sense, want to escape this, because this isn't heaven. This isn't reflecting God and all that we see. But but it's really rather selfish. I'm only thinking, really, of me... (laughs) But the glory of glory, the glory of heaven, is the fact that everything reflects Jesus, and he's worthy of our praise. I, I have to think about that, and meditate upon that, and to sort of get out of the selfish mode of heaven, though I think God wants us to be happy about how good it will be for us. But to begin to think what's really glorious about it what's really joyful about it what's really great about it is that it reflects Jesus that he deserves that kind of honor I was trying to think of how I could even explain this to myself and I was thinking a student who's studying under a great teacher wants to be like his master wants to be like his teacher but only so he can make a name for himself but in this case you see we want to be like Jesus So we can make a name for him. So we can show him to be great. So that when there's a banquet, it's in his honor. Not in ours. It's in his honor. Because at that point, we'll know who we are really well. We know that we won't have deserved that. We know that it will all have been a gift from him. And he will receive the honor. So Peter's in a sense saying, now if God's going to do that for you, he'll get you through this mess that you're in now. He'll get you through this difficulty now. He'll get you through this time of suffering now because he's the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory. And after you've suffered a little while, now I wish Peter would have said 27 days or two years and three months or even if he said the rest of your life. But he just said a little while. We don't know if that's in contrast to eternity or if that's contrasted to the 80 years that you might live your life. he says, after you've suffered, after this time, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, will restore you, will confirm you, will strengthen you, will establish you. He'll restore you. He says, listen, don't worry about anything that you have lost, because you'll be restored. Think about the situation with Job. You you know that that situation. Satan comes to God. Job is tormented. Goes through a number of chapters of just wrestling with that. And at the end, two things happen. There's this great vision of God that he gets. And then he gets his stuff restored. What I believe Peter is saying is, not so much you'll get your stuff restored, but you'll get to a place after this suffering that will be better than you were before because your faith will be stronger. You'll be made complete. So it's not all that different than what he said, for instance, in 1 Peter in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while it's necessary... You've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus. He's saying, "Listen, at the end of this, your faith will be so strong, it will be restored. Whatever you've lost, don't worry. Don't worry. Whatever is being taken." During this time of suffering, during this time of difficulty, don't don't worry so much about that. Trust in God; He'll restore. I believe in heaven. We'll never look back and think, "Oh, I lost out there." In fact, the Apostle Paul speaks to that very poignantly in Second Corinthians in chapter four, and verse sixteen. For we don't lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away; our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this Slight and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. We will know that a day will come, no matter what we've suffered, no matter what we've lost in that sense in this life, that a day will come when the glory will be so great that you can understand that you will have never missed what you lost here for the sake of Christ. So He will restore you he'll confirm you. Interesting word. We have this little expression about some people and they refer to themselves as confirmed bachelors. What does that mean? It means they're pretty stuck. They're pretty safe. This is where they want to be. They're not moving. They're not budging off this thing called being a bachelor. And so he says, at the end of all this, you'll be fixed. You'll be firm. King James Version has an interesting word. It's just the word established. Not the word established, but established. My spell checker rejects it. I get nothing from my thesaurus. It's just a King James word that means established, fixed, not going anywhere. He says, that's what you'll be like. You'll be restored. You'll be solid. You'll be strengthened. You'll be, last word in the ESV, you'll be established, that is grounded, founded. Same word that's used in Jesus' illustration of the man who built his house on The rock you have hope, because it's the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. He will get you there. That's your calling by God. He is summoning you there. You'll make it. So, keep the faith knowing that at the end of all this you'll be restored. You'll be confirmed. You'll be strengthened. You'll be established. Now, what's all this Mean? Well, first, what it means is that we'll have suffering. Peter doesn't say, don't worry, you won't have suffering. He says, no, after you suffer a little while. Secondly, we come to understand how we're to pray. We're to pray for grace of all things. We're to pray that God gives us grace. As he says in Hebrews chapter 4, 2, Take care of to handle to help us through every need that we have we're to pray for grace we're to pray that he restores that he confirms that he strengthens that he establishes us through this in the midst of all of this and to summarize all of that he says this in verse 11 to him be dominion forever and ever amen God says, I will do it. We're not to be afraid. We're not to be timid. We're to be watchful and sober. But we're to be ever so confident that after we've suffered a little while, that we'll be stronger. That isn't pie in the sky. That isn't wishful thinking. That's the word of God. And we can bank on that because we know that we'll make it because he's the one who has called us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Even can help you with us. Help us as we sing. I know there are those here that have very little idea what I'm talking about. For they've yet to really suffer. And I know there are those here who have suffered and know exactly what I'm talking about. So I pray, Father, that you would do your work in us. Confirming, restoring, strengthening, establishing. That we may be confidently strong in the faith. In this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. remind you that the response to our benediction is the very end of that passage I read, which is to God be dominion forever. Amen. So you may have to take out your bulletin for that one. It may not flow as easily as some. But please receive this as God's benediction. Now to the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip us. By the way, that word equip is the same word as restore. Restore us equip us with every good thing for doing His will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, to God be dominion forever. Amen.